Good day and welcome to the ESPN and Wimbledon conference call. At this time, I'd like to turn the conference over to Dave Nagel. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Audra. Hello, everybody. Apologize for the uh, slight delay in getting started. Welcome back. The Wimbledon fortnight begins Monday, the usual all-day, every-day coverage from ESPN TV and ESPN 3, where you get to choose the court you want to watch, whoever the player is that attracts your attention, uh, up to 15 courts at once available. And uh, qualifying is being distributed for the first time. It's on uh, ESPN 3 every morning until uh, at 6 a.m. Eastern time, and with yesterday's day of rain, it doesn't uh, finish up until Friday at this point. We will go around the room. We'll give everybody a chance to uh, speak to uh, our three tennis analysts here. We have the brothers McEnroe, John, and Patrick. Also, Pam Shriver. There's, of course, lots to talk about in the sport. Uh, Top players, the old guard versus the new. Some surprises this year, whatever else is on your mind. They all will be in London soon enough and uh, have a very busy two weeks for ESPN. So now we will get started. Batting leadoff from USA Today is Sandy Harwitz. And in the on-deck circle, Howard Fendrich from AP. Hello, Sandy. Hi, Dave. Uh, hi, John. Um, I was curious if you thought that the comments you made about Serena, I'm sure you're tired of hearing this, but if you thought it would make as much of a stir as it has. And also, um, if you do think so, why do you think this is a relevant conversation? Well, I think that the first part of your question was no, I didn't. This is not something that, you know, it's been earth-shattering that I feel there's a difference in, you know, the levels of the men and the women, even though I was trying to say how great I thought Serena was and how good she's been for American tennis. And the second part of the equation is uh, the question was uh, whether or not uh, this uh, had relevance. Is that what you asked? Yeah, like it's a uh, to, uh, conversation to try to, you know, how the men would go to the women. Oh, I don't think it's relevant. I don't, you know, that's part of the frustration of that I'm having that people keep talking about it because it doesn't seem like we hear about it in other sports. I mean, I know Bobby Riggs played Billie Jean 40 years ago or 45 years ago, but I continue to sort of not understand why this is such a topic of conversation, and if so... If people are so, like, uh, have the men and women play together. I mean, if if the women want to do that uh, and, and if that would be good for tennis, I'm all for trying things that would be good for tennis. I don't understand why tennis seems to be the only sport that this is talked about. Right. And the women okay. would not want to do that. <laughs> that must have been Pam's voice. Bingo. Yeah. What is your feeling about the conversation, uh, Pam, on that? Well, you know, I think it's a conversation that um, we all revisit and have every so often, and um, I think it's fine to have it. I think it's two different uh, divisions. It's the women's, it's the men's, just like it's singles, doubles, mixed. There's different divisions, and you don't you don't mix up the divisions, and you know, great tennis matches are great tennis matches, regardless of uh, of which division you're talking about. So women will always play women at the majors. There might be some exhibitions that are kind of fun that, that brew up. I can remember playing doubles with Martina against Bobby and Vetus Gerolitis back in the mid-'80s when we had our win streak going. So it's it's always going to be – it's good for our sport that it's still a part of the conversation – 
but it's really not relevant where Serena would be ranked in the men's game. It's just not relevant. Great. Thank you. All right. Next up, Howard Fendrich from AP, and then Kellen Sung from the Washington Post. Hello, everybody. Thanks for doing the call today. Um, the uh, group of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray has, has controlled Wimbledon for about a decade and a half. And um, I'm guessing the three of you think the likeliest outcome this time around is, again, that one of them, one of that quartet will win the, the title. If I'm wrong about that, please uh, please say so. But I'm wondering if someone outside of that group were going to emerge as the men's champion, which man or men would you give a reasonable chance of winning the title instead and and why? Well, having worked with Milos last year uh, and getting, you know, him getting to the finals, um, he was someone, one of the reasons I worked with him was because I believed he could win it. And um, so I would say that he would be high up on the list of the most likely person to win it if it wasn't the four that you mentioned. Um, Vavrinka obviously has three majors. Um, so anyone that's got three majors on, you know, the three different ones and would have a career grand slam if you won Wimbledon, you've got to take seriously, although I do feel that Stan struggles with his movement more on grass than he does in his confidence more than he does on any other surface. And, you know, I've seen Dimitrov play um, the best match of his life in Australia, losing seven, I think it was six four, seven five in the fifth to Nadal. And I thought, okay, he's back to where he was when he was in the semis, and it looked like he was going to win some majors. Then he's tailed off again. I think his game can translate to grass better than any other surface. So he wouldn't totally shock me, even though I don't feel like he seems to have mentally found that next gear in order to deal with these guys. And then after that, I mean, it's uh, you know, I'm hoping Zverev uh, is you know the guy in a year or two. I think he will be, but I don't think he's ready to win it yet. And Kyrgios would be the most talented guy. I don't know what's going on with him. I mean, I know that I get frustrated with his lack of effort, uh, you know, at times. The talent is, you know, enough to win multiple majors, uh, the the physical and raw ability, tennis talent. But, you know, you got to combine everything. Um, So... um, after that, you know, I did, but but I, your original premise of one of those guys would be where I would stand. Patrick, anybody beyond the five uh, thirty somethings? Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I would agree with John. I, I mean, you know, Roundich to me has been a bit disappointing this year. Maybe that's because he doesn't have John helping him. Um, <laughs> but he certainly would be the most likely guy. Curios is. Uh, Got, um, you know, I think grass is his would be his best surface and his best chance to win one. But there's just so many question marks with him, not only mentally but physically as well. Um, you know, team would be another guy. Uh, although grass is probably going to be the trickiest uh, uh, surface for him. Though I think he's of the of the next, you know, the young generation. I think he's a guy who has the best chance to win a major until Zverev gets a bit stronger physically, which is going to take, in my opinion, another probably 18 to 24 months. Uh, So in general, uh, I would agree with the premise of both of you two, John and Howard, that uh, we're going to be talking about, 
likely two of those four guys on Championship Sunday. And, and just quickly, I mean, I, I agree it's going to be one of the big four. I don't think Vavrinka on grass is his worst surface, so I, I can't see him uh, winning. And I, I I just look to a guy who might catch fire with his serve and go through two weeks, um, if not dropping serve, just dropping serve once or twice. So you look at the big servers that can back it up, and I think the one – it's most fascinating, has already been mentioned, which is uh, Kyrgios. I, I, I always like to see a lefty, and I think when you look at what the over-30s are doing, I'll throw in another outsider with uh, the Spanish Lopez, who uh, just on grass, he, he can do some incredible things. And um, if you're looking for a real outsider, I'd, I'd just throw in a tricky lefty who can hold serve a lot and knows a grass court. Thanks, everybody. All right. Very good. Uh, we now go to Kellen Sung at the Washington Post and then Michelle Kaufman at the Miami Herald. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for doing this. I have two questions. Uh, first, uh, yesterday, Brad Gilbert said that he thinks that there's 40, uh, any of 40 women could win Wimbledon. I was wondering if you guys thought the same thing, if, if there are that many possibilities. I don't know if he's exaggerating a little bit, but uh, you said dead on the field, basically. And then the other question I had was that in, in March earlier this year, uh, one of the junior players in the in Maryland wrote about how she personally experienced a lot of widespread rampant cheating in junior tennis. Uh, and I was wondering if you guys thought this was a serious widespread issue, and if so, if it's gotten worse. Well, I'll start again. Um, the cheating, you know, Patrick is, is is at my academy now, and he certainly, you know, he ran the USTA, and he has a lot of experience in this with his daughter playing a lot of tournaments as well. That it, the cheating in the game is, to me, worse than ever. I guess the stakes are higher. So it's a shame that these poor kids feel so much pressure. They cheat in practice uh, at the club when we play. It's crazy. So that is an issue that definitely has to be dealt with. Uh, Brad, I, amazingly enough, does exaggerate sometimes. Um, but I think his point was, is, uh, I'm guessing, uh, that because Ostapenko, who won the French, was like 40-something in the world, I believe, 40 to 50 in the world when she won it, that that would lead you to believe that that would make it equally unpredictable. So I think his point is somewhat well taken. I think no one would have ever that I'm aware of, picked this girl to win the French. So that would subsequently lead you to believe that normally we'd throw out sort of 10 names, but that you could add a bunch more, maybe maybe 20, possibly up to the number he's referring to. But I, I doubt it would be that big. But then again, who would have thought that this girl would have won the French? Patrick, you want to go next and then I'll follow? or? I'd like you to go, Pam, because you have a, okay. a child playing competitive tennis, too. I do. My uh, my son's been playing for about two and a half years, not that, that many tournaments, maybe six to eight a year. Um, I find the burden on young junior players to be out there on their own in charge of keeping score, calling lines, managing their game, and supposed to do it all on their own in tournament tennis, I find it um, really a challenge when you compare it to other sports. 
other team sports, especially um, even if you throw in golf, you know you're you're rare, you're rarely alone. Um, and I think it's one of the problems of of growth in our game. I don't think it's I don't think it's fun enough. I think it's too much uh, stress on most young kids to manage all of that um, on their own uh, at a time when it seems like our kids need more and more. They they have more and more support or helicopter parenting, not that it's right, but in an, in a time in society where parents are uneasy about having kids do more things independent, tennis kind of still stays with the old tradition. you got to go out and play a tournament without coaching and without, you know, all this stuff you're supposed to do. So I, I think it needs to change. I think it will help the cheating. I think there should be officials like AYSO soccer has it structured so there's an adult uh, there's an adult observing a non a, a, a impartial adult observing every competition and I don't mean like one wandering official for 10 courts so we have to do some some changes I think to make it have less cheating and make it more enjoyable for our youth You want to tackle the uh, Brad Gilbert prediction too, Pam? Before I take oh, over? just quickly. I mean, I think um, on a grass court, you don't have 40 players that are comfortable enough to win on a grass court. But I do think women's tennis, especially with Serena, um, very clearly on the sidelines, looking beautiful on the cover of Vanity Fair. Um, I think that probably that 10 to 15 number is better number at Wimbledon. Uh, so I'll just follow up. This is Patrick on the junior tennis thing. There's no doubt it's a, it's a major problem. Uh, but uh, not to disagree with Pam, but, you know, we, we all, we, we did the same thing when we were kids, and it's not to say there wasn't cheating when we grew up, but uh, it is uh, the pressure is, is felt by the kids because of uh, whether it's coaches or, or parents, et cetera not because the kid, you know, they, they're obviously somebody is putting pressure on them and they're feeling compelled to cheat, which uh, I've seen uh, almost rampant. At the, you know, and I, I go to a lot of junior tennis tournaments. So I think we, we have to do a bit. We, we certainly can't blame the kids. We have to blame ourselves and blame the adults. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's unrealistic, despite what Pam said, to think that we're going to have a – umpire at every match because there's just too many matches. It's economically just not feasible. Um, the ro- having the roving uh, umpires, which the USTA provides at you know, most tournaments, is certainly a positive. I, 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 I hearken back to the time when I went to Italy to play in a big junior tournament. I think it was, I was 14. It was a big European 14 and under tournament, and they forced every player to have to umpire a couple of matches of other uh, junior matches, which I think was a great lesson for the for the players. Um, I would like to see something like that at some tournament because, uh, you know, that could be tricky to pull off because parents are just way too uptight at the moment. But uh, I think that's, that's sort of a place to start. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, penalizing the kids when they do uh, make, you know, repeated bad calls, which I've seen, again, far too many times uh, is really the only way to deal with it. Just quickly, I didn't say there needed to be a full umpire. I just think there's 
adult or an older monitor, whether it's an older junior player, a parent who has a kid in a different event, it's it's like the AYSO model. You you tend to you you volunteer, you get trained, and then you ref the game before your kid's game, and that model works really well. Even though the standard of you know it's not like perfect um, officiating, but it's a lot better than letting kids do it themselves. Thanks, everyone. All right, I think we will uh, we'll now. We'll move on now. Uh, Michelle Kaufman in Miami, and then Neil Best at Newsday. Hi, I missed the beginning. I don't know if I'm not sure if this was asked yet, but uh, have you guys talked about Roger Federer yet specifically? No. Who's that, Michelle? Roger Federer. Roger who? Have you guys talked <laughs> about him specifically? Okay. Oh yeah, you know we did guy? talk yeah. about him. Yeah. You did talk about him yeah, specifically he sounds familiar. in the beginning. <laughs> no, we no, did not. Just, we did not. We'd love okay. to, actually. Okay, good. Um, I wanted to ask about him and, you know, the fact that, I mean, he seems to me to kind of be the favorite here, which is, you know, we wouldn't have maybe suspected a year ago. And, and the fact that he took the time off during the clay season to focus on this. Uh, can you just talk about his chances and do you see him as the favorite, capital T, capital F? Well, he's going to go down. You know, he's going to go in the the odds makers as a favorite. Um, ironically, uh, the courts at Australia are going to play quicker than the courts at Wimbledon, which wasn't the case in the well, when maybe when they're grass, uh, when they're on the grass. But the courts were faster down there, which really helped uh, Roger uh, do his thing. It, nonetheless, it was still amazing when he pulled off. But in uh, and, and, and the grass at Wimbledon. He he will be the favorite, I believe. With you know, Murray will probably be the second guy, and then after that, it's going to be a little bit more unclear. But um, he hasn't beaten uh, Murray or Djokovic yet in the best of five. Uh, he didn't play the French, obviously, so it's going to be interesting. You sort of hope that pans out to see if those guys can get back on track or how great uh, Roger really is playing and able to do it again because. There was so much a temptation to say it'd be pretty hard to top it, what he did in Australia. That would have been a heck of a time to say, okay, I just proved something miraculous. But he seems to be like the $6 million man, and he's uh, he looks great physically, and um, he re he's rested, and he's one of the few guys that could make the decision to not play the clay court season and then walk into Wimbledon and be the favorite. So it's, it's it's an amazing story what we've seen so far in tennis this year with him and the doll, the way they've been playing. Thank you. Anyone else want to weigh in on Federer? Um, I think that was, uh, that was said well, Michelle. This is Patrick. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. You know, not to me. What was obviously amazing was to win the Australian was incredible, and the way he did it um, in the final. Actually, the way he did it the whole tournament because he had some you know really tough matches, five sets against Nishikori, et cetera, and came back. Um, but you know, then he goes and put, wins my Indian Wells and Miami, you know, back to back, which is uh, obviously record book wise doesn't have the same impact as winning number eighteen. But from a tennis standpoint, that's pretty darn difficult to do and pretty impressive. So, 
I think having that extra week in between the French and Wimbledon gave him a little more time and made it probably a better better decision for him, an easier decision, I should say, to miss the clay season because, you know, he went to the first tournament, had an early loss, but he still had another tournament where obviously he found, he found his game last week. So I think um, that really helped him. You know, now he's got a week to prepare uh, on, at Wimbledon itself in London. So I think uh, he really was uh, certain well-served by the extra week off. And I'll just quickly add, I, I just love his um, evolution as a better tactical player, Federer. I mean, he was so gifted early in his career. I didn't. I don't feel like tactics were all that necessary. And then more in the last few years, I think he's realized he needs to um, just be a tactician as well as that great athlete, one of the greatest athletes ever. So I think Lubacic has been an perfect coach for him um and i think that on a grass court your confidence of what you've done earlier in your career is such a huge help that he certainly is going to be my pick um because i don't see anybody else playing great tennis the big question i think will be how will rafa make the transition and will he have like one of the years when he did the double will he be able to make that kind of transition this late in his career and um we'll see thank you all right, Michelle, thank you. And now Neil Best at Newsday, and then Matt Futterman from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, for John and Patrick, I was talking recently to John Isner about the age-old question of the state of American men players, and he was pretty confident about guys 18 to 21 in the pipeline that could really kind of emerge in the next few years. Do you agree with that? Do you see some guys on the horizon that could make, make some noise? I, I see some guys that could be top ten. I see like an Opelka. I see a Francis Tiafo. I see some other good competitor, Taylor Fritz, uh, a while back. Uh, he seems, I don't know, if, I think he's had a combination of injuries. He's gotten married, had a kid at a very young age, so that obviously complicates things. Um, I think Jack Sock could make it to the top ten. Um I'm not, and there is going to be a void, obviously, because the, the top guys that have been winning everything are getting older, so the door is going to open at some point. You got to think soon, um, and there's an opportunity for the young kids. Not sure that I see guys yet um, that I believe are going to win majors. Um, there's some guys, a bunch of guys that I believe could be, you know, a couple guys top ten couple guys, you know, 10 to 20. There's other real solid young kids coming up. I I don't know right yet if I would I, – I could pick, like I'd look at Zverev and i say, you know, I would be amazed if he didn't win majors. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's going to be – hopefully they're going to continue to push each other. That's usually the key. The guys get around each other. Hopefully that will happen. Yeah, this is Patrick. Um, I would agree. I think that uh, the good news is is that there's more there's, there's there's more numbers in the young American men than we've had in arguably you know ten to fifteen years um, as far as being top hundred players. And as John said, the potential would be top ten. But uh, there's 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 no lock of a guy who you look at like you look at a. Zarev, or you look at even the kid from Canada, the two kids from Canada, Shep Hovaloff and uh, Felix Auger Alisamy, um, you know, that you look at those guys and you say, wow, like you could see that 
absolutely happening. Those guys are 16 and I believe 18. Um, and, you know, I think Tiafo's got, the, to me, the best shot because he's the best overall athlete. He's got a couple of technical issues in his game, but if you look at his overall athleticism and his physique, you know, he's got the speed and, and the uh, ability and the firepower. Opelka certainly has a tremendous upside with his serve and his, his game, but he, he's almost too tall, you know, to be a guy that I think can can, can certainly consistently be at the top. But uh, I, I, I try to focus on the positive, which is I think there's a whole host of, you know, six to eight players that are, you know, under 21. This is, would not be including Sock, who I think is certainly at the moment the best capable guy of, of going deep in a major at the moment. Um, that can be legit, you know, consistent Grand Slam players. Thank you. All right, next up, Matt Futterman from the Wall Street Journal, and then it'll be Barry Jonoff from NewYorkSportsJournalism.com. Uh, hi, I was just wondering if you uh, could gauge when the younger guys are playing, um, you know, these guys in the Big Four, I guess that's what we'll call it now, the Big Five, how much of it is, excuse me, how much of it is mental uh, in terms of going up against them um, and sort of knowing that you're going up against these sort of giants of the game that you have to get over that first? There's no question the mental part is huge, uh, particularly when you have to try to play with the intensity and the effort and the will of the top guys. Not only are they super talented, but they seem to want it more than the other guys, uh, which is a great attribute. I, when, when I would be with Milos, I'd say, look at, you know, why is it that you're playing Rafael Nadal in, in Australia and, it, and the guy's won 14 majors and you have none, and it looks like the guy wants it more than you do? Or Federer, when, you know, he, the, I think, was the best effort Milos ever gave mentally, but when he beat him in the semis, uh, Roger it's arguable it looked like he wanted it more. He'd won, he was 10-0 in Wimbledon semis coming into that match. So you, you have to – one of the lucky things with one of my great rivals, Jimmy Connors, is I had to sort of look in the mirror and tell my, ask myself if I was trying as hard as, as this guy and, and a lot of times and, and wanted it as bad. And a lot of times I wasn't sure. I didn't think I was. And I had to find that extra gear if I was going to compete with and, and be respected or thought of at the same level or maybe be able to get by him. And there's no question that these guys, like Dimitrov, for an example, I mean, you're just not going to walk out on the court. And because you've got game and you've worked harder and, you know, you're a good guy and you're an excellent tennis player, you're, going, you're not going to go and beat these guys at, at major events. It's just – and it has – that's – a big reason why it hasn't happened is because of uh, the very reason you're, you asked the question, the mental part. There's no doubt. It's, it's Pam. If I can just chime in, and um, John, I like the way he c- compared his feelings when he would go up against Connors, and I think about, like in my era, we had, you know, it was Chrissy and Martina who had a lock on things in the late 80s and until Groff came along, and then the three of them, were there for a bit before Chrissy retired. Um, but, you know, it's like in, in my era, you had those three champions win between them, 18, 18, and 22 majors. They all, um, you know, even though Groff's a bit younger, I mean, they all played at the similar era. And for the rest of us, it was um, a real mental and physical. I mean, we weren't as good 
in any category. Um, I mean, still, like, Manlikova is like the Stan Vavrinka. She broke through and won, like, four majors. But overall, the other great champions of all time were just so much better in most every category. So that's what you've had on the men's side. It's it's just extraordinary. So it must be frustrating for the Burdiches and the Thongas and to think that they could play their entire career and be players that would have won a couple, maybe one or two majors in other eras. But guess what? It's just the way it works. Great. Thank you very much. We good there, Matt? All right. Um, next is Barry John of NewYorkSportsJournalism.com, then Richard Pagliaro, Tennis Now. Hey, guys. I want to thank you for your time. I wanted to ask John, moving from the tennis court to the basketball court, what he thought about um, the Knicks and Phil Jackson parting ways today and possibly Carmelo going somewhere else with Chris Paul being traded to Houston. What's happening with the team? Yeah, well, John, that's John, obviously John whatever. Actually, this is this is Patrick. Well, first, John actually has a song that he could play for. <laughs> no, I already did that. It's uh, it's old news. Okay, uh, right, the, okay. right. the song that I sang yesterday on the Dan Patrick show that had a Knicks theme was that Phil. I was the, my understanding that Phil was going to you know finish out his contract and that he wanted to try to turn things around, even though obviously this has not been going too well. So. Um, and the, the things that he did try, trade-wise or picking up free agents, hadn't worked out. And obviously the way he had handled the thing with Mello, I don't think anyone could really, including himself, think that that was the right approach, even if it was better for both the team and Mello to leave. It just wasn't handled well. So um, I was surprised um, that this happened. But from what you know, the, I don't walk around with and hang around with NBA players around, but now and then I'm around – a couple and or people that are involved in the NBA, and it seemed like there was no question that uh, people were less inclined to sort of make a move towards uh, the Knicks at the moment, which I always found amazing because I mean I'm I am biased, but I think New York's the greatest city in the world, and I'm thinking we can't get guys to play for the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden. That just seems beyond belief. And if it had. Uh, <laughs> I guess if it had something to do with Phil Jackson, even though he was a legendary Nick and was one of the great, if not one of the best, if not the best coach, or certainly top couple of coaches, if it's better moving forward, I guess it's 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 better now because it just seemed like it had gotten so toxic that it just wasn't going to be able to work out this way. Do you, say, do you see them moving in the right in a different? At least they they got to make some moves, but you see them moving in a better direction now. You know, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom or, you know, what appears to be. I mean, I would have sworn to you before the season started last year, I thought they were going to win I, before this past season. I actually believed they were going to win 50 games. I thought that, you know, having Joachim Noah, who my, his father has been a longtime buddy of mine and had was uh, you know had some skills, obviously, and a former defensive player of the year. And I know, knowing him, that he dreamed of coming to New York. It was like a dream come true for a kid that – spent a lot of his life growing up in the city. And uh, picking up Rose at the time seemed to be a sensible risk, a one-year deal. And you got some other players, and Porzingis was coming along. I mean, I just I couldn't – I know some of it was bad luck, and um, 
Unfortunately, the knock on Mello seemed to be uh, continued to be true, which was unfortunately it didn't seem like he was make even though he's obviously a great offensive player and he seems like a good guy, that he wasn't making the guys around him better and better enough the way that some you know the way these other guys like LeBron's the most ex- obvious example, but uh, that's easier said than done, and then maybe uh, Mello would have been better off uh, sort of allowing Porzingis to get more of the spotlight. It would take some of the pressure off him. So if it ends up he does stay, uh, which who knows what the hell is going to happen now, but if it does, I would think it would be better for Mello if he allowed more Porzingis to flourish, and it would actually help him. So it would be, I think the fact that he feels like he's being overshadowed in some ways, I think is, I don't think that that's accurate. I mean, it's going to take Porzingis, even a best-case scenario, a few more years to get to the level we hope he gets. All right, thanks. Good luck at Wimbledon. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm sure Richard Pagliaro will get us back on track here with something for tennis now, and then Bill Simons uh, from Inside Tennis. Hey, thank you all for doing the call. It's really, it's really great. Uh, first, I want to ask on Venus. You know, she got to the Australian final this year, Wimbledon semis last year. What's your thoughts on Venus and what she can do? And secondly, to pick up on what Pam said earlier about Roger realizes he needs to be a tactician. How much do you all think that Roger cycling through coaches every few years, like Roach, Edberg, Anacone, Lubitsch, how has that helped his tactical evolution as a player? And then lastly, just for John, I saw that um, the trailer for the Borg McEnroe movie. It looks really super intense. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I haven't seen it, and I haven't been involved in it, so I can't give you a good answer as much as I'd like to. Obviously, because it's me, and it's about my match, uh, I'm presuming the 1980, unfortunately not the maybe 1981 Wimbledon final with Borg, but the 1980 Wimbledon final that even though I lost, I'm proud of. Um, I hope it's good. Um, that's sort of where it is because I really, the only thing I've seen is probably what you've seen, which is the you know, one-and-a-half-minute trailer. Um, so that would be that. Um, and, and you're talking about Roger. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure how much the coaches have had to do with this. Uh, perhaps all of them had had a say. I mean, maybe he, he, he loves talking tennis, and um, all those guys bring credentials and quality. Everyone that he's worked with had brought something to the table, I presume, but it ultimately boils down to Roger. And maybe it just clicked at the right time. I mean, that uh, he just it all came together in Australia. The court was playing faster than ever. It allowed him to sort of do things that maybe he didn't feel he was able to do uh, before. We had long wondered why he would sort of give away the ad courts and the doll with the serve and, you know, chip it as opposed to try to come, come over it. And maybe, of course, it's easy to be the backseat driver and easier said than done uh, when you're cheesy when you're the commentator. Why don't you just do this? Uh, um, but it did appear that it finally sort of, over the course of this last, well, particularly in Australia, that he sort of decided, okay, and some of that had to do with the racket. He got a bigger frame. He became more confident coming over his backhand. He felt it could, I guess, you know, hit hit over it more consistently. But it seemed like that would have been something that he would have been shooting for for many years. But when you're winning majors as many as he did, I mean, he's, he probably was like, look, 
I'm winning all, a lot of them anyway, so who's to tell me what I should do? And I think he, he, he realized. He himself decided, uh, okay, I don't have you know the legs are as long as uh, it's going to be limited amount of time, so I got to pick and choose. I mean, he didn't play a tournament for six months. He won the Australian Open. It's crazy. Um, he's chosen not to play the French. That's extremely unusual, but that could work out beautifully. So, if you're able to pick and choose and don't care if you're going to finish year number one because you only played eight tournaments or and the other guys played eighteen. Um, and you've got the financial wherewithal to do that, you're going to see this happen more often. I presume if Serena comes back from her after she has a kid, she's going to, she in essence has been doing it for years anyway in a lot of ways. And, but you're going to see more players try it. Nadal missed a few months, and he looks better than he's looked in years. So I would be highly surprised if more of the veteran players don't do it. Uh, Richard, this is Patrick, and I'll let Pam um, chime in on, on Venus as well because uh, I'd like to hear what she has to say. I, I, I think for myself, think that it's a, you know, I wouldn't put her as a favorite, but the fact that Serena's not there has got to give her a little extra uh, motivation, you know, because obviously grass has by far been her best surface. And uh, as Pam noted correctly earlier, I don't think there's as many players that can win on grass. You know, there's Kvitova, there's, you know, some obviously good, quick, fast-court players. But in general, I don't think there's, uh, you know, just the same as the men, I don't think there's that many men that can win it. I think Federer has been uh, incredibly smart to bring different people in over the years because, as John said, he, he loves tennis. He loves to talk tennis. He has people around him that he enjoys being around. I mean, he's got his whole family. He has parties, you know, when he loses the French Open final. So I think part of his, his brilliance over the years and part of why he's still playing at this level is that he enjoys it. You know, he enjoys being around. As, as John said, I don't think the X's and O's are that big of a deal, um, although Lubitschitz certainly had one of the great, you know, one-handed backhands that he could come over it and go after it. That was his best shot. So you'd think that uh, he got into Roger's head about doing that, which was a big part of him winning the Australian Open. So, uh but I think that Roger just loves being around it and, and having people around that he admired as a kid or that he played against Lubitsch, a guy that, you know, he liked on the tour. I think all those are, uh, you know, things that enable him to just keep enjoying the travel and the grind of the tour. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated in, in a year where we've seen more tennis history or more historic things happen this year than most any year, whether it was – Roger coming from 1-5 down in the fifth to win his 18th or Rafa winning his 10th or Ostapenko from Latvia did what she did. I, I think Venus um, has as good a chance as anybody on the women's side to win. Uh, this would be her sixth Wimbledon. I think about three years ago when she was still figuring out how to manage her Sjogren syndrome and she was on the way back, she played Kvitova in the year that Kvitova won her second Wimbledon, um, the match of the tournament. Uh, there's one break of serve. And if Venus can tap into her grass court game where she uses that slice out wide on the on the deuce side, gets up 15 love virtually every service game, and uses her net net play, I mean, there is she can be as good a grass court player out there. Kvitova is obviously the other big threat and fascinating story that would be. Um, so I, I think it's 
I think it's uh, as likely as any of the other remarkable things that's happened this year. Um, and it would certainly be incredibly popular. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, Richard. Uh, now we go to Bill Simons at Inside Tennis, and then we will wrap things up. I don't know if we'll have uh, any follow-ups. We'll see. Uh, with three gentlemen over in the United Kingdom. So, Bill, it's now your turn. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for doing this. And, John, congratulations on your book. It's good. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the Serena situation. I guess critics say that with women's tennis in general and Serena in particular, there's, I don't know, a certain prejudice. Uh, there's always a qualifier. And, you know, we know the history with the Indian Wells crowd and a tournament director saying that women should get down on their knees in gratitude and people referring to the Williams brothers or that she's going to have a, a kid that's chocolate with a little milk and so forth. And I guess people were saying that your comment came sort of on the heels of all this and just why not just say that Serena's a great player, a great pioneer and, and leave it at that rather than sort of having a qualifier. Well, I suppose that uh, that would have been uh, an avenue. Uh, when I was asked the question, uh, I was just talking about Serena, and I said, look, she's, you know, obviously if it wasn't for Serena, the American tennis would even be in a lot deeper trouble. And she, in my opinion, is the greatest female player ever. And then the lady said, well, why don't you just say the greatest player ever? So it sort of took me aback because I didn't realize, I wasn't quite sure what she was saying, but I'm sure that perhaps it would have been easier just to sort of left it. Look, she's a great player and it's apples and oranges. Yeah, I, I read the transcript, and I, I agree with you. You, you were, seemed to be a little caught off guard, but now would you consider saying, hey, we shouldn't even really talk about where she ranks uh, in the ATP and that she stands alone as da-da-da-da and a kind of... Uh, uh, well, you know, I've said that many times, and, I, you know, we have... Yeah, uh, We've had these conversations, you know, fairly often, as Pam said in the beginning, Occasionally, these things come up, and um, a lot of people weigh in and whatever their feelings. Um, people don't have to agree with my opinion, and maybe it was wrong, and maybe you know I'll, I'll agree, it would have been better not to have said it. And I wish I would have, uh, if this I didn't realize it would create something like this. But if it, you know, maybe it's better it hadn't been said because I have a lot of respect for Serena. And uh, she's been great for the game. I mean, I think people that know me know that. Um, I think that that's that's really that's really the what what it boils down to. But I mean, it's not as if I just that was just an opinion. I mean, <laughs> that's just my opinion. Okay. Well, thank you, John. Look. All right, now we will uh, take a turn to the right and uh, head for uh, Tom Alnutz first from the Press Association, and then it'll be uh, Stuart Fisher from the Glasgow Herald. Hi, guys. Thanks for the call. Uh, I just want to ask Barry. Um, I was just wondering what, what you kind of, uh, if you kind of feel that maybe he's missing dance right now, because obviously for so long he had uh, Djokovic kind of in the way, and... Um, before that, a couple of other guys, and it seems like there's been a bit of a, a, bit of a gap, and maybe he 
um, was kind of primed to capitalize, capitalize at the end of last year, but it hasn't really happened. Um, I was wondering what, you, what your thoughts are on, on his form generally and whether you think he's kind of missing his, uh, his golden moment. Well, uh, I, I think he did capitalize. Uh, he capitalized by finishing the year, which no one ever thought, probably including himself, that he'd finish the year number one in the world ahead of these all-time greats. So what he accomplished last year was amazing. Um, I think that took a lot out of him, and I th- emotionally and physically. And I think he's been trying to rebound that for, from from that for quite a while. And I think you saw signs of him being able to to get to move on and get back to where he wants to be at the French, where he had a pretty darn good tournament and he was a tiebreaker away from being in the final. Um, and so he's one of the guys that's you know comfortable, knows how to you know, play on grass, and it's tougher to beat a major. So, I mean, I think he's going to be the second favorite. So I think he's going to be in a good shape to sort of try to step up and try to reassert himself. Yeah, this is Patrick. I mean, I I think that uh, the last six months last year for Murray were just uh, off the charts. And uh, he pushed himself mentally, physically, and, and quite frankly, I wasn't surprised at all that he, suffered a little bit the first half of the year because I think he put so much uh, pressure on himself and he was able to accomplish something that, as John said, I think was a surprise to everybody. And uh, he did it. You know, he got to one. He won Wimbledon last year. He's for sure most comfortable on grass. So uh, based on how he played at the French, you got to think he's going to be right there uh, at the end and have a great chance to win it all. Uh, But when you look at who he's been up against, uh, in Roger, Rafa, and Novak. I mean, these are three of the all-time greats who I think all three of them are slightly, you know, better tennis players than he is. And he's, you know, got an amazing resume. But, I mean, the fact that he's he's become such a great player over the last decade, uh, I think is an incredible testament to his, his hard work, you know, and how hard he's worked. And I think he's had to push himself physically harder than those other guys. Because those other guys, I think it comes to them. Uh, obviously, they've all worked incredibly hard. But I think playing tennis comes to those three guys a little bit easier than it comes to Murray. And, um, again, this is all relative, right? Murray's way better than 98% of the rest of the field, 99%. Um, but he's really had to will himself and push himself so that he could compete with these guys on a, on a regular basis, which he's done. And I, I think he's got an excellent chance to uh, win another Wimbledon title. Can I just chime in really quickly about thinking about Andy Murray and everything he put out to win a major and then he won his first major and then to end the drought at Wimbledon, everything that would have gone into that emotionally. I mean, it was over like a period of years that I think he just pushed and pushed and pushed. And the final push for him was to get to number one. And his his effort... Um, and I think given what Patrick said, realizing that it doesn't come quite as naturally, it doesn't have the big weapons the way some of the other great champions of the era have. And so I just think he's he was due for, like, running on empty, and it takes a while. I mean, you look at Djokovic or you look at even Federer and Nadal, they're down. If you look at their – it's not – it hasn't just been all – they, they all have had these dips, either physically, emotionally, whatever, and so Murray's having his, and it's just normal. Thank you. Thanks for that. Great. All right. 
now with Simon Cambers at, uh, no, excuse me, excuse me, Stuart Fisher at the Glasgow Herald, and we'll finish up with Matt Lambert at the Daily News. Hi, guys. Thanks a lot for doing this. Again, uh, you know, I hate to have tunnel vision, but <clears throat> obviously I'm just wondering with an Andy Murray perspective or possibly even Djokovic, if any of you guys can remember, uh, you know, a tournament where you, maybe you weren't playing so well going in, and then everything suddenly just kind of clicked and, you know, the, the last wee bit of form just was forgotten about. You know, maybe that's maybe what Andy and possibly Novak are kind of looking to happen uh, this year. I can't remember that far back. I don't... I know the word... I, I can get... I can guarantee you there were times where I was un, somewhat unsure of what was going to happen, and yeah. so there was some trepidation and some anxiety, uh, more so than normal, and the things eventually did pan out. So it's it's unpredictable. You know, Murray lost first round in Queens. Um, so you could say, well, that set off some alarm bells. But um, Djokovic normally doesn't play anything, and he decided to play in Nottingham, I think. Uh, that's unusual. You know, so people, there's things going on because the status quo shifted back to Nad, uh, Nadal and Federer. Mm-hmm. Federer lost first round to Tommy Haas, but then won the next event. Um, yeah. So you can sm- somewhat throw these things out the window, and you sort of play it. It plays out, okay, what are the seeds, who plays who, where, and then you start to get a better idea as you see them. But they're all tougher to beat in the slams. And so uh, while we'll have surprises, I think Patrick originally said way back when, the likelihood is that two of these four guys are going to be in the final. Yeah. At least one, and if not two. So um, still these guys have consistently and amazingly stepped to the plate. And I think Murray's record – at Wimbledon, the last ten years has been pretty—it's been pretty amazing. So I—I I, I got a feeling that I would really be surprised if he didn't have a good tournament. Yeah, it, I'm interested because it alters the psychology of it. You know, it's almost like he's back to being the underdog, even though he's the number one in the world, defending champion, number one seed. Yeah, well, I think that uh, he's had more stress than any athlete that's ever had to experience playing in a major event. And Pam mentioned just a minute ago he overcame that when he won Wimbledon for the first, you know, Britain 76 years or whatever it was. So he's handled himself extremely well under the circumstances over the years. And perhaps you're right, just the fact that people are sort of go, oh, Roger, he's the favorite. And look what Rod- Nadal's doing. And so that probably will take a little bit off, but there's still obviously a lot of expected of him every time he plays and until the last time he hits a ball at Wimbledon. Okay. Stuart, I'll just I'll just quickly follow up. I think you got enough on Murray, but I I think the more interesting psychological angle is Djokovic. You know, because I think yeah. Murray's going to be there. I think it's just a question of uh, you know how how his draw is, and to me, it's more for him. It's maybe even slightly more physical because I think he's got himself where he's back and in pretty good shape and feeling pretty confident. But Djokovic, to me, is I mean, obviously he's got the game to win this. He's done it a few times. But that, to me, is really um, the very interesting sort of angle because it was last year, you remember, when um, the proverbial you-know-what hit the fan uh, before he played 
Sam Query. At least that's what he yeah. told us, uh, you know, after the he lost that match, that, you know, some things had happened in his personal life. And uh, so we've all, uh, you know, watched him sort of have to deal with that, you know, in a very, yeah. obviously in, in a very stress-filled open environment. And uh, it's been difficult for him. So, uh, you know, grass is a great surface for him. Uh, but it's also a surface where, you know, you can get picked off early if you're not quite there, if you play somebody that's got a big serve or gets hot. So mm-hmm. that, to me, is a, is a much more interesting uh, sort of situation to watch how that unfolds this year. Okay. All right. Now we will wrap up this uh, hour of conversation with Stuart, uh, with Matt Lambert at the Daily News. Daily Mail in London. I'm sorry. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for doing this. Um, I just want to know what you all think about Joe Conter's chances at Wimbledon. She's only ever won one match at Wimbledon, but she's obviously one of the one of the top players now. So what, 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 what do you make of her chances? Well, Pam, why don't you jump in? I'll, uh, I'll chime in with, um, you know, I think Conta can look to somebody like the way Murray's handled the stress through the years, even the way Tim Henman handled it, and um, take some notice uh, from some successful British players that have managed it all. I think the fact she wasn't born in England and um, she, you know, immigrated there uh, later, I don't know, does it take a little bit of pressure off, perhaps? Um, she, she plays a tense game anyway, wherever she plays, she's kind of on edge. She's had a lot of help with, um, as, as every athlete should, with how to manage the mental side, the emotional side. Um, so she's—I I don't think she's ready. I, I don't know if she'd be in my 10 to 15 p- possibilities. I don't think her current form is strong enough to, to warrant that. And I think with the pressures of the home Grand Slam, I, I wouldn't—I wouldn't put her in that. But. I think someday she will learn just the way Murray learned to manage it. You learn to uh, do it better as your career goes along, and careers are so much longer than they ever were. So she has conceivably 10 to 12, easy 10 to 12 Wimbledons, where, and that's how she has to look at it. It's not about this year. It's about um, learning to manage all that is there for the homeland player at Wimbledon. And, uh, but I don't think she'll. I don't think she'll have a great Wimbledon this year. Yeah. Well, I, I will say this though, Pam. I did check the uh, the, uh, the lab brokes the other day, and I believe she was the third favorite. Believe it or not, which is uh, amazing. But you know, I, I agree with what Pam said. I think uh, you know the the pressure of playing there is certainly going to be difficult for her. But when you look at her game, and you look at her athleticism and the way she plays. There's absolutely no reason she can't win Wimbledon. I mean, she's got a big serve. She's an excellent athlete. She hits the ball big off both sides. Yes, she can, you know, you know, spray the ball a little bit. But when you look at um, the fact that usually it's really, really great athletes, athletic-type players that win Wimbledon, um, she's got a lot of those qualities to her. Maybe she doesn't have sort of the, the variety in the hands, but – Boy, I mean, she can pound the ball off both sides. So, uh, you know, if she could, if, which is a big if, and I agree with Pam, if she can handle the expectations and the pressure, I think she's got, a, you know, as, as good of a chance as anybody that's there. Uh, so, so do you guys overall think that um, for Conta, you know, for some players, the having the British crowd would be an advantage? Do you think for her at this stage of her career, 
it's going to be a disadvantage. I don't think it'll be a disadvantage um, necessarily. I think it all depends really on how what the confidence level is. She, she actually has a great ability to have her ritual on the court, and she's very disciplined about that. So she'll know what to expect. And I, I think... I, I think every player should embrace having the crowd totally behind them. What a great thing that is. Imagine being the other player. I'd much rather have the crowd on my side anytime, anywhere. Okay, yeah. But, uh, I, I suppose Joe kind of likes to – she sort of plays in a bubble, so maybe she, she's not going to feed off the crowd as much as someone else. I'm just, I was just looking at her Wimbledon record, the fact she's only won one match in singles. That's uh, first week, obviously, her first couple of matches. The draw uh, is going to be crucial for her, that she has some comfort matches. She's going to have a really, you know, a, a good seed, um, a good spot in the draw. But there's unusual depth in that 33 through 50. So she needs she needs to sink her teeth into a couple of matches and then you know, one one match at a time. Get to the, get to the second week with some confidence. She's been to the semis of a major before, but you know, when you've only won one match someplace, it's uh, not that easy. Right. Thank you very much. All right, we will wrap things up. It all gets underway, of course, Monday morning, 7 a.m. on ESPN2 and all the courts on E3 for two weeks, all day, every day, first ball to last. I thank everybody for their interest. John, Patrick, Pam, thank you very much for your time. And, uh, and uh, if you have anything else, uh, feel free to reach out to me here. And uh, enjoy your day, everybody. Thanks a lot.